Welcome to another Stories in the Landscape conversation on StoryArchaeology.com. Today I get to share a second conversation with Jamie Madden. So today I get to talk with Jamie Madden. We shared our first Stories in the Landscape conversation just over a year ago. And for anyone listening who doesn't recall my introduction to him then, Jamie is a story discoverer, a storyteller, something of a genealogist, and an affordable housing expert and town planner, from Boston, but now living in Seattle. But now I have to add this, that he's also a gifted writer and interpreter of Irish stories. So, Jamie, tell us about yourself and what you've been doing since we last met up. I think it was last June. Hi, Chris. It's such a pleasure to be back to chat with you again. And it's been quite a year on the housing front, on the work front. I was able to help a client get under construction on 39 new affordable homes on Cape Cod. Mm. Did other work as well, but it's always very special to me when I get involved in helping a family have a new home. And I've also been working on my book about affordable housing, revising the first draft of my hybrid hybrid memoir. And it's been at the really exciting part lately Mm -hmm. uh, where the art is showing me where it wants to go, what it wants to look like. And it's been surprising me and it's, it's been quite a journey. And then uh, on the home front, as you know, I've got my little Banshee, mm. Neve, who's four years old now. And we've been emerging from pandemic life <laughs> and made the first of three big international trips we dreamed of during the quarantine. We, we took my daughter, Neve, to Korea to meet that side of her family. And I got to watch her interact with her 99-year-old great-grandmother mm. and get her great-grandmother joking and laughing. Wow, um, treasure, that's quite something. Real treasure. She had dozens of relatives across four generations just absolutely spoiling her and spoiling us. Uh, she was fast friends with some of her little cousins. Uh, one of the cousins, her, her little sister, uh, the four-year-old, her mom tells me her English name is Erin, to which I replied, even better, no, that's an Irish name. <laughs> that's the name of Ireland itself. It's where it comes from. <laughs> Uh, so now I've got myself the task of trying to figure out how to get a simple, engaging version of the Aru story and maybe even get it simple enough to try to translate to Korean because <laughs> now I've got, you know, a little niece in Jejudo named Erin. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, it's a good story, but probably not the easiest one to make uh, accessible to a very young child. But I'm sure you'll manage it, Jamie. Yeah, it's no bluey. It's no bluey. <laughs> Now, I know you've been undertaking some very special journeys and have more planned for next year. I think you said you're actually planning to visit Ireland. Coming back to Ireland with my daughter has been the dream, one of those quarantine dreams. We did Korea first, we're next. And uh, at five years old, I'm hoping it will be the perfect age and a Venn diagram between her interest in fairies and magic and my interest in mythology. Um, <laughs> and I'll also finally do the Irish-American thing on, it's probably my fifth trip, I think. But in any case, I'll finally go and stay in the townlands that my immigrant ancestors were from. I'll be in Killiner, outside of Athlone, and maybe see the Hill of Oisnick or those other sites, friends of ours as well. Mm. Uh, Curry and Sligo, which is not far from Cashcorin yeah. and Carrowkeel. Oh, yes. Uh, and then way up in Clonmani at the top of the island, where um, it's uh, turned out to play a large role in my book because its history is about housing and eviction violence. And I'm fairly certain that's why my second great-grandmother left there. So mm. really looking forward to this, having fun with my daughter and showing her off to friends and just seeing these places that I've been desperate to go see again after these years of research and writing stories and so forth. And you, you know, many of the places you mentioned are really not so far from here, including Athlone, but yes. particularly Sligo and Keshkoran. Oh, the caves of Keshkoran are wonderful. And Carrowkeel, that's very, very special. Up in the Brick Leaves, that's very, very special. 
So I hope you'll come here as well. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. However, I believe last year you also explored a well-researched but wonderfully creative Imrov yourself. Yes, the Imrov Brieg Boston. You subtitle it an Irish mythology collage, and I think that's a brilliant idea. But in essence, you've created an Imrov connecting the Brieg of mythology, the Bridget of hagiography and folklore, with Massachusetts, its islands and coastal landscape features. Well, I suppose that's via a creatively curated collection of stories from the Irish Imrover. I'd had this thought a while back about adapting an Imrov into my corner of the world. Boston has all these islands in the harbor, and these islands all have their own stories in the landscape, from like 19th century castles to abandoned 20th century asylums to landfills to a highly advanced sewer treatment system. And you know I love a good Dinshankis. Mm-hmm, um, you do. For, for some of the Boston yeah, Harbor Islands, it's quite easy to connect the islands from the Imrov. The island of begrudged wealth says something as Deer Island, which is a massive sewage treatment plant now. Anyone who's visited or even flown over Boston, it's those giant white eggs on the horizon of the harbor you may recognize. Uh, throughout their history, Bostonians have used Deer Island as an internment camp for the native people, as a garbage dump as a prison, as an asylum. It's where we send the things we believe are shit. Mm -hmm. So the island of begrudged wealth was very easy there. Others, the parallels might just be in a name or a shared detail, Long Island and its apples, George's Island and the beautiful host, the graves. Um, And what I meant by an Irish mythology collage is I didn't write the Imrav Brig so much as I copied and pasted and cut and smoothed. sections from the Imrav and the hagiographies and such. I like to make map and photo collages to commemorate trips, and I approach this the same way, but with words rather than photographs. I tried to keep as light a hand as possible on adding words and ideas, instead hoping that the original material could be arranged to take Bridget on a meaningful, transformative journey. The stories begin with the life of St. Bridget, and I hope by the end of the Imrav that she also understands herself as the Brieg of the Tuedidanen. It, it's quite a major piece of work, and it's, it's a brilliant idea. I just like the way that you've applied all these different sources to create this new imagined Imrov. So why did you choose Brieg, Bridget, as the one to take this Imrov? You've drawn on a number of differing stories to create your Bridget, and this blending of characters is honouring so many stories, and it's very effective. But how did you get there? Tell us, go on, tell us a bit about the process involved. Yes, yes, well, thank you for the kind words first. Um, as I was trying to pull things together, that personal transformation aspect of the Imrav was in my head, and I started wondering which woman from Irish mythology could really use a good Imrav. So I began myself a wandering journey through the online resources at Kelt and Dochis.ie and all the podcasts and so forth. Um, and then I encountered the early hagiographies and then back to Bridget and on the life of St. Bridget. And these surprisingly felt a lot like the Imrov to me. They're quite a miscellany. They, uh, yeah. And they're, they're this interesting moment in history, you know, that the original materials would have been written probably in the late 600s, contemporary with Patrick and Colm Keel. And it's such a fascinating time with pre-Christian and post-Christian Ireland existing together for a few centuries there. And the cultural conflicts between the two really showing up in literature, both the Imrav and the uh, the hagiographies of, of Bridget and Patrick and Colm Keel really feel to me like they're 
this mixture, this transition time of, of pagan and Christian. You're quite right. I mean, when I think about the difference, say, between the Voyage of Melduin or the Ikora, and when you come to St. Brendan, you've really got uh, Augustine in the background shouting at you. You know, it's, they're really different, there's different views in the Arova, so I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and then some of the stories and the hagiographies turned out to be stranger and darker. They're not all that pleasant. Uh, than I'd expected to encounter with Bridget. Our folk memories are the cloak hanging on the sunbeam, the cloak expanding over Kells. Uh, presumably she's wearing a cloak while making beer rain down from the skies. <laughs> yeah. you know. But she was so much yeah. more than just a cloak or clothes, you know. So in any case, I came across these stories in which Bridget uses miracles to really kind of uphold the patriarchy. Mm. Um, in one, she turns away a woman who was looking for child support from the bishop who had raped her. Um, she helps a guy whose wife hated him by sprinkling him with a love potion so his wife, quote, straight away loved him passionately. You know, for someone who tore her own eye out to avoid marriage, she doesn't appear to have been very big on consent in that case. Another time, uh, Bridget was doing dishes with a girl who interestingly is named Brig in the story. And uh, Bridget makes Satan appear in a plate. She says that Satan says he's there because one of Bridget's nuns is so lazy that she allowed Satan into the house. So they call the girl in and, quote, saying her eyes. And it just brings to mind the Magdalene laundries. Uh, the church doesn't exactly have the kindest mm -hmm. history with these situations. And, you know, this week Sinead O'Connor is on all of our minds. And it just, it really seems important. Uh, you know, I should say, like, these kind of patriarchal stories are a minority of all the many miracle stories and origin stories. And Bridget's central values really are generosity and equality um, as we remember her today. Mm -hmm. But even in that context, I, I think it's interesting that she's got this maybe unconscious support of the patriarchy, and that makes her no different than the rest of us. <laughs> um, and that's what made her a really dynamic character in my head. Um, and of course, Bridget and, or Brieg really straddles pre- and post-Christian Ireland as a character herself. So uh, I thought I'd put her in a boat. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's true that it's amazing how little Brieg actually appears in the early textual stories. But in that one appearance in the Kathmakaturit, I think it's really important that she has such a central role and that it brings Keening into Ireland, her empathy that comes across in that story. Absolutely. And I I've been thinking about Keening through this lens lately as well, and, and not unlike Brieg herself. We've got so very few remaining traces of what Keening actually was and actually sounded like. There's just a, a small handful of recordings, and they hint at something very important, which we have lost, and I, I kind of find the same way about Brieg. So I hope to find more. Talk a bit about what, what really attracts you specifically in the hagiographies of, of Bridget. Well, aside from them being stranger than I thought and making her a more complicated figure kind of with the patriarchy and her place in it, they, like, they're this project that links to the Amrava really well because whoever wrote them was very specifically linking this Christian saint into mythological Ireland, right? They, she's very established as part of the pre-Christian world in the hagiographies. Her father, Dovatak, is a druid. His lineage connects him to a lot of old Ulster hero figures. He impregnates a, a bondsmaid, and his wife makes him sell the poor woman, Brooksek. Uh, Bridget's mother gives birth while working to bring in the milk, and she's only halfway into the house when she delivers, doesn't spill a drop, you know, and then and then feeds her with a white red-eared cow, and we know when there's a white red-eared cow involved. <laughs> <laughs> she's given all the ethlu and uh, ethna qualities. Absolutely, yeah. And then she continues in that 
to be kind of situated in that Gaelic culture, right? Dovetak tries to raise her as the daughter of a, of a big man with a big dun and all. But uh, she's this rebellious kid who's always sneaking away to help her mother, or to give away food and possessions to the poor. Dovtak tries to sell her away to the local king just to save what was left of his stuff like. But the king doesn't want to take on the risk of her uh, either. So then Dovtak and his sons try to marry Bridget off. She dashes that plan with that well-known move of tearing her eye out of her head. They just give up and agree to let Bridget off and join this new Mediterranean cult being spread by an Italian guy from Britain who used to be a slave himself. She takes the veil, and then the hagiographies go into all the miracles, the many, many miracles. It's even worse than the Imrava for having an onslaught of odd anecdotes. But for the purpose of having an Imrav's first act, I included only a handful of them in the Imrav Brig Boston. I kept the entirety of the Bishop Braun episode, and I think that's worth reading, um, especially right now. All right, I'll, I'll put up that specific piece as a separate note. So you'll be able to read that online separately, yeah. Um, so I use that as, you know, each of the Imrav have this precipitating incident that sends the main character off on their journey. And uh, for me, the Bishop Braun story really was that. And it, it's so ridiculous. If it was from the 90s, it, it could have been on Father Ted. If it was <laughs> from 2019, Bridget might have gotten canceled on Twitter for doing what she did. So I use that as a precipitating event. And after the Love Potion incident, I inserted Brick Rue. Who else do you insert to <laughs> say something weird and get the trouble started? Uh, so he delivers a criticism and a prophecy on Bridget. Uh, she defends patriarchy and bondage with quotes from Ephesians and Isaiah. Brick Rue counters with a uh, Nehemiah quote that really sounds like it's lamenting the loss of their native Irish culture. And again, this project of moving Bridget from pre-Christian culture into Christian culture in the hagiographies is where that goes. But in mine, uh, he kind of delivers the gash from the voyage of Maeldon and mm. they're off to the water. You've captured something there. It's, it's really good fun that you've taken these important stories of Bridget, which often just get, well, they feel like they've been hung on sunbeams themselves. There are all sorts of lots of little stories mm. that you can't believe, you can't fit in. They're gathered from all sorts of sources and attributed to her because she gathers she gathers stories around her like as if they've been hung on some some beams to be honest look but the the story you mentioned i'll i'll make that available as part of this conversation so that people can read it while you're talking about it but now you get to take bridget and her women on a wonderful imrov and every event in ireland that they visit they visit is identifiably embedded in one of the Imrava voyages. Indeed, you begin the story based on the voyage of the Ikara, but you've created something highly imaginative and extremely interesting. You're locating these Imrava on islands and locations on the northeastern coast of America. You talked about it a little bit in your introduction, but it's quite a remarkable thing to do, and it's such fun. Yep. Well, sure, but isn't... <laughs> Those are the islands I know. I, I, the Hebrides are... You know, an alien world to me. So as I got into building the collage, what I did was I compiled all the islands from all the recognized Imrava. And uh, your table made that work much easier than it would have been otherwise. And then I spent some time looking for parallels that would allow me to use these old stories as fantastical Dinshankis for the real islands in Boston Harbor and nearby. And like the miracles from the hagiographies, the islands didn't all make it, um, but the islands that survived to the final draft really helped tell some tales. And again, without me altering the original stories very much, the word create 
you know, almost grates a little bit uh, for this for me, because again, I, I just cut and paste things together. These were created long, long ago by many of our ancestors. I'm glad you found the tabulated in rubber useful. I, I must admit, we needed it to survive working with all the different versions. <laughs> so it helps us to sort it out. Uh, I'll put a link to that connected to the conversation. Well, let's um, let's explore some of these islands. The first one they get to is named as the, I love the title, the Island of the Codflap. Well, I didn't say I was sophisticated about making all of these island analogies. Uh, this is just the Island of Salmon, but with a substitute fish. And with that one word change, this little story transforms into a Dinshankus for the first European landing on Massachusetts. <laughs> the Puritans, led by Branford and Standish, they first came ashore on the tip of Cape Cod, which is what they called it, because there were a lot of fish there, uh, before relocating across Cape Cod Bay to Plymouth, where famously they began the, col the colony. And then cod fishing really drove the economic development of the Massachusetts colony for a century or two. The cod trade goes on to connect Massachusetts to the Azores, and Cape Verde, and ways that presaged the whaling industry in a little book you all might know about that. Um, and there's even a sacred cod carving that presides over the Massachusetts State House to this day. Our government business happens under the sacred cod. Um, the actual cod themselves, however, didn't really make it. Um, <laughs> we depleted the fishery of cod, also of alewife, which are two fish that city kids from Boston, like myself, <laughs> first learn as place names and then later on learn we're, we're fish. <laughs> oh, that's a good story. And the, ne the next island they visit is called the Isle of the Wondrous Apples. But tell us more about what happens. Yeah, well, it starts with the adventure of Kian Suntag. Uh, in that Imrav, their boat encounters a mysterious, long, skinny island full of miraculous, quite out-of-season apples. And the whole crew then survives 40 days at sea eating just the apples. And here, probably like whatever monk decided it was 40 days they were on the water, I did add a few paragraphs to the original. I thought the symbolism of the apple in both Irish mythology and the Bible provided an opportunity to highlight this Christian pagan tension um, that these stories do. Bridget's pagan brothers eat without hesitation. They see the apples as a gift from the other world. Mm. Bridget's pious women refuse to eat the apples at first uh, because Karen yells about the Garden of Eden and about temptation and their vows. <laughs> but before long, the physical reality of hunger overcomes and they eat. So they're just two islands in and their religion is already beginning to slip away from them. Um, and then mm. taking... Prag pragmatism takes over its It always does. <laughs> and, and taking this long island of wondrous apples uh, to my corner of the world, Boston Harbor does have an island named Long Island, which, by the way, is not to be confused with New York's Long Island. One is Long Island, one is Long Island. And, and on Boston's Long Island, I believe they did grow apples. The they who did the growing being poor people, the city bust on and off the island for shelter or rehab or treatment. For a century or so, Long Island was this great example of our American tendency to send poor people elsewhere, out of sight. But it also did provide food and services and shelter to some struggling people. But just a few years ago, the bridge to the island was abruptly deemed unsafe. The island was suddenly evacuated. And suddenly, a few hundred Bostonians were dropped on the streets at a time when, uh, not unlike in Ireland, the economic factors had been driving homelessness up already. It's become much more visible. So Long Island is on people's minds. And this kind of ambiguity about what an apple means 
and is it a blessing and what is our mm. obligation to the poor and the least among us and how do we survive again without having to change a whole lot from the Imrav just by situating it on Boston's Long Island I, it, it gives me some questions I can't answer cleanly there's things to think about for me mm-hmm. well you know you really are giving it an extra level of meaning and relevance and you're quite right about the apple the Isle of Apples which is a a goal to aim for, an otherworld wonder. And yet, it's almost as if that's appropriate for over there, mm-hmm. but it's not appropriate for here, not in this life. You know, and that's what you get from the apple. The apple branch is another symbol in the voyage of Bran, and it's both brought to him as a temptation, but also as a gift and a wonder, and it sets him out on an imrov. But of course, once he goes, he can enjoy the pleasures of the Isles of Apples, but he cannot return to everyday life again. And it contains that same sort of tension that you're talking about, this uh, problem with the the pre-Christian yeah. and the Christian world, the, the world of animism, where everything is always there around you and you just step from one to the other. And one where it, it's, it's to do with punishment and virtue, which, of course, the other world in the Irish is not. Yeah, I You think just you've... explained it so much better than I can. You've got me interpreting what I put together uh, it works. Yeah. Look, come on. What about another one? Sure. Well, we can start with the island of the guardian cat because that's not an Emrav island that can be left out of the story. It's just a fun one. It's one of my favorites because it's based on an island that Melduin and his crew visit. But go on, tell us what happens when Bridget visits it. Yeah. So I, I take Maldun's visit. I change very few words in it. It's, it's on its own. It's just so weird and so cinematic with these existing Bridget connections. I only had to add one line, and I really just added that one for the crack. It wasn't necessary. But, uh, you know, in Cormac's glossary, Bridget has a nickname of the Fiery Arrow, and that name has lived on in our folk memories of her. We broadly associate Bridget with the Forge and with Fire, with Brieg as well. But in the story in Maeldun, one of his brothers tries to take jewels from right under the guardian cat's nose. The cat followed him as far as the middle of the room, and of a sudden leapt through him like a fiery arrow and burnt him to ashes and then went back to play on its pillar. In the hagiography, when Bridget tears out her eye and her brother's eyes, she curses her brother that his eye should not be whole until death. So I added a line, Beckon regained his lost eye before the cat transformed into a fiery arrow to kill him. There are enough of these little coincidences, shared motifs and such, that it almost got me wondering whether there may have been some kind of Imrav for Bridget or Brieg lost to time that we just don't know. Mm. There's certainly a lot, I think, of the original Brieg that was taken for granted. I don't know whether it was lost to time, but I I get the feeling that she was central, her stories were known, and therefore when she turns up in a story like the Cathbagaturid, people already know more about her. I think Mm. this is, uh, uh, there is something going on there. And yeah, sure enough, she's very closely connected with the Forge. Go on, choose another of your favourites. Yeah, well, the island of the black and white sheep gave me an excuse to allude to the story, the, the actual history, true story, of Malaga Island in Maine. And I, I know the original Imrav didn't mean black or white for the sheep in the racialized way those words sound to our ears today. I mean, African people would have been gorm anyway, not black. Mm-hmm. But um, there are these moments in American history that torture me with a potential, with a what-ifs, these places and times where people created equitable, integrated communities where they lived peacefully until an outside force destroys them. 
mm -hmm. last time I was on with you, I believe we discussed the story of the Marymount Colony, which is one of these. We did. Uh, and Malaga Island is another of these stories, and they just don't get told enough. So any excuse to tell it, I'll take. Quickly, what had happened was uh, Benjamin Darling, an African man from the West Indies, was brought to Phippsburg, Maine in the late 18th century with a Captain Darling, um, who had almost certainly enslaved Benjamin. But anyway, Benjamin is said to have saved Captain Darling's life. Feels generous of him. Uh, saves his life during a shipwreck on an island in Casco Bay. So the captain rewards him with freedom and enough money to purchase a Casco Bay island, which of course had been vacant for a century or so, and had come to belong to settlers from the Massachusetts Bay Colony instead of its indigenous people. But in any case, Benjamin and his descendants settled on Malaga and other islands in Casco Bay. Some have suggested that Malaga's name may derive from the wreck of Darling's Bridge, which was loaded from timber from Malaga, Spain. In the Imrav Brig, I suggest the big man who's flipping the black and white sheep around spilt Spanish wine because he's so frustrated that the black and white sheep keep mm -hmm. mixing up on his island. He can't stand it. And much like him in real life, the white Protestant Yankee settlers on the mainland lost their minds over Malaga Island. Mm -hmm. There's this community of escaped slaves and other African-Americans, Irish veterans of the U.S. Civil War, Scots-Irish misfits, and together they all created an integrated mixed-race community with a church, schoolhouse, and homes, surviving on fishing, gathering, and gardening. The school became so highly regarded that mainland families occasionally sent their children to Malaga Island for school. And that peaceful community lasted about a century. But as the 20th century dawned, tourism and eugenics both rose in popularity. Mm -hmm. So the white mainlanders utilized their power of the state to empty the islands of all these horrible non-white people uh, and make the islands attractive to tourists. They falsified land title, declared the islanders insane, uh, used the evidence of all that crazy race mixing as uh, insanity, evicted them and put them in an asylum. Yeah. Uh, so most of them were imprisoned in an That's asylum. Crazy. The town, their structures, everything was torn down. Mm. And it's been vacant and untended ever since. And it really didn't have to be that way. The U.S., we could have had the Malaga version of us. We could have had the Marymount version, the Rosewood, Rock Springs, or Tulsa versions. And not only did the white supremacists of the times demolish and massacre those communities, they seem to have wiped them from the collective memory. Um, I, I learned the word Malagite as an old-timey racial slur in New England decades before I heard the actual story of Malaga Island. So I rarely pass up an excuse to share these histories because a better version of ourselves is possible and it's been done before. And so the island of black and white sheep and this, the bizarreness of the mixing and changing and how much that really upended the worldview in the Amrava was you know, one of those little excuses to put Malaga back out there. It becomes a, a very strong allegorical or at least applicable story. It's very powerful. Is that not a story worth the telling? I think... It's a wonderful way to use an Imrava story and to give it new and relevant modern, modern meaning. And then they get to the island of women. Yes, Imrav Brieg, like most of the Imrav, reaches its climax on the island of women. By this point, Bridget has been through tremendous wonders and unimaginable danger. She's lost people on this trip. And worse, she's lost her own sense of what she thought had been reality. And then she arrives at this heavenly island of women, but her brothers are terrified. The island queen draws them in with the old sticky ball of string trick, and then recites the Morgan's Rosk from Kath uh, Magatorid using Isolde's translation to criticize the patriarchy's faulty ways and terrible results to convince the women on the boat 
that the men are worried for nothing. Just come to the island and they get there and there's hospitality and they all feast and fuck and live in perfect harmony with no need for work or effort as happens on the island of women. And while there, Bridget kind of finishes this personal transformation and she begins to think of herself as Brieg. She's found something in herself and she sees something else in her brothers that she doesn't like, this misogyny, a willingness to plunder, an inability to be satisfied or to have enough. So she begins to prefer the island queen and the life she made possible. But as with Maeldoyne and Bran, Brig gives in to her crew and they all leave to return to Ireland. And Brig knows she's left paradise. She knows it was not the Christian paradise, though. And then she keens with the grief of it on the open water. Um, and I put in for the keening verse from Kitty Gallagher's Keen for a Dead Child, you know, one of the only old keenings we have. So in any case, Brig is keening on the boat. And before they return to Ireland from the Island of Women, they wind up on the Island of Intoxicating Fruits, which in the Boston Tinshankis is Plum Island, <laughs> uh, mostly for the name. And the grieving Brig gets absolutely pissed on the odd fruits juice. And she has this fever dream for which I inserted a bit of folklore I found about St. Ruidan's Holy Well, uh, found in the school's collection. Mm-hmm. And it just so well echoed the Brieg and the Ruidon of the Kath Megatorid. And I was kind of excited to have found it at this, you know, 19th, 20th century holy well mm-hmm. associated with curing a child. Maybe. A good Ducas finding is always exciting, isn't it? So the, the Ducas story, uh, the way it goes, she brought her son to a well in which there were three trout that could not be caught, no matter how they hungered. Through summer, the water was wicked cold, as it is in every season. She dipped her red-haired son into the cold water, knowing not whether he would be immediately cured or die. Uh, the wicked cold part, that was in the original. That's not me. But yeah, this was this is, you know, St. Ruadon. This is a red-haired son who needs healing, and we don't know if he's going to make it or not. Now that is interesting. It's an oral memory of one of the most important moments of the Kathmagaturid, the one where Brieg keens over the body of her son, Ruadorn, who has been killed in the forge just after he's chosen to help his father's people destroy the healing well, which could have been used to heal him. And then the despair of leaving at the Island of Women, the despair that is in, you know, Brieg losing uh, Ruadon, uh, makes it in there. Via the Ducas story, um, it was wonderful mixing texts from centuries apart that really fit here. It's really impressive and very, very creative. I mean, creative in the sense of the way you've brought these elements together. So they've taken on a new meaning and new relevance. But so finally, Brieg, Bridget and her people do return to Ireland. And I like the way you've used the template of the Voyage of Bronn for this final section. Its language identifies it as most likely a very early story. And you allow Bridget, like Bronn, to depart back to the new worlds that uh, she's encountered with her women. And that's the point. This is the Bridget of the Irish diaspora. She's joined the so many families who emigrated to America and settled and where their descendants still live in many of the locations you describe in the Imrov. And in our last conversation, you talked about the journey that some of your own relatives made, facing challenges as great or even greater than those faced by Bridget in this Imrov. 
Well, I'll tell you, I kind of hope Brieg didn't join the diaspora and, and she did make it back to the land of women and lived happily ever after and instead of joining us in Boston. But you're correct. I mean, Bridget did follow our diaspora. Bridget, like a Malagite, is another word I would have learned first as a racial slur, too. The wealthy wasps in the 19th, early 20th century, they used Bridget as a slur to refer to their Irish domestic servants, uh, which was, in fact, the work my grandmother's mother did before she got married and became a homemaker. Uh, Mary Jane Kena, she was the last in a chain of women going all the way back to Angorta Moore, who labored as maids as Bridget's on Beacon Hill in Boston until they could save enough to pay the way for the next niece in the chain to immigrate. Incidentally, Mary ended the chain. <laughs> Instead of sending for her younger sister Delia, she got married herself and raised four children, the only one of these immigrant women to do so, interestingly, and her choice to to end this chain is, um, is something of a family mystery. She was definitely mean to her sister. She may have done it out of selfishness. On the other hand, you know, she had children and the U.S. had just passed an immigration law uh, a couple years after she arrived that for all practical purposes really outlawed immigration to the states from 1924 to 1965. I think there were 7,000 something Irish people as a quota. I mean, a, a tiny percentage of before, although much higher than Asia or Latin America and so forth. And of course, at that time back on the island, there was war and nation building going on. So I wonder whether it was circumstance or choice that led Mary to break this chain. And uh, that ambiguity, again, mm. Mary's choice is there, the meaning of Bridget, us Irish Americans, odd position, both as colonized and colonized colonizer and all the associated cultural loss that goes with those, all those ambiguities really might actually capture our diaspora well. And uh, this Amrava ended up being a personal journey for me along the way as I was just trying to help Bridget. I really enjoyed again. talking to you about it. And I think the important thing is that people should read the whole piece for themselves. So I'll make sure that the link is there, maybe pictures of some of the islands. It would be good to have a gallery to accompany this as well. For fun, I, I put it together in kind of a, a fake old manuscript style, and I uh, scanned in a lot of my daughter's abstract art and, and put it like I was illuminating a manuscript. And she nearly didn't give me permission. She she saw what I was doing on the computer, and she says, Daddy, that those oh. pictures were for you and Mommy. I, I negotiated. I think I gave her ice cream for the rights to them or something. But th they're fun, and uh, people will be able to go on the site and see that PDF. Jamie, I... I nearly forgot to say that because I told you, I recognised that they must be Neve's pictures and I thought they were absolutely delightful. So yeah, let me make it clear that on Story Archaeology, you'll be able to find the document in all its glory with your text, the Neve's pictures. But I'd also like to collect a little gallery page of um, images of some of these islands. So Jamie, we've got another piece of your writing to talk about, but I absolutely. think we'll save that for a second conversation. And this one is called... Be the writing of the takings. I, I, I've been learning this mythology and thinking, these stories are so, they're so good. They're better than the Greek stuff. They're better than all the German stuff that we're taught here in America. <laughs> and I want people to know them. So while the Imrav Brig was a collage, I, what I've tried with the writing of the takings is to make sense of the Lever Gabala by writing a short story about its writing. So I've got a group of Fili and monks uh, hanging out at Ellen Maka, telling what they each think the true history of Ireland is and trying to set it down in a book in a way that connects with the Bible. 
and they can all slag each other and take the piss out of each other. And done that way, the, the Lover Kabbalah actually starts to make more sense. Maybe it's just me, but I uh, would absolutely love to discuss it with you. It's quite hilarious in places. That's what's coming up next. So until our next conversation, Jamie, which is going to be very soon, for now, thank you for talking with me. It's been a delight. Thank you, Chris. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's an honor to be on. I've learned so much from you and from Isolde. And so to even have my voice here, it's just exciting for me. Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children, as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon. <laughs>